Hi, this is Murder at Ryan's Run, and I'm your host, Beth McNamara. Welcome to Season 2. At the end of Episode 14, which officially wraps Season 1, I said that I would explain some behind-the-scenes of the podcast. If you are a new listener, what I'm about to share might not make any sense, but I promise that if you go back to Season 1 and start there, that you will be like, oh, I get it. The Murder at Ryan's Run podcast original plan was to share our research and investigation into the 2002 murder of ex-MOVE member John Gilbride. We were figuring on eight episodes, all carefully planned out, written, edited, with scheduled release dates. As an experienced TV producer, I had a plan. Four months before our plan to launch the podcast, I was contacted by members of MOVE that were born into the Philadelphia group, both before and after the most widely known and deadliest confrontation between MOVE and police, May 13th, 1985. These members, now adults, many with children of their own, shared very serious allegations of fraud, racism, colorism, homophobia, abuse, and crimes that happened inside their revolutionary family, known as MOVE, that many in the public just believe is a back-to-nature Black liberation group that was bombed by the city of Philadelphia. When you look under the definition of cult, it's all there. It's definitely not a Black liberation group. It is abusive, physically, mentally, sexually. It was a cult. I was duped. I was misused like everybody else. Most all of the interactions I had were highly manipulative. You feel so trapped and alone, and you feel like there's no way out. I felt like I was just born to be tortured. There's things that was happening to us that we didn't even realize was a crime. Why the fuck didn't anyone help us and intervene? The, the Philadelphia police, the Philadelphia media, City Hall, everybody has been had. You've all been played. Move is a lie. Myself and the podcast team believe the allegations of these whistleblower victims because we could corroborate them independently. And we believe them when they said they were scared to go public, fearing retaliation, physical harm, and possibly even death. John Gilbride had escaped MOVE and allegedly received threats, surveillance, and harassment for years before his murder in 2002. Our whistleblower victims have alleged that MOVE leaders made implicit threats you don't want to end up like John Gilbride, or explicit threats. If you speak against MOVE, or our founder John Africa, or try to leave with MOVE children, you will be cycled, which means killed. Hearing all of this meant that the podcast needed to proceed with the utmost caution. Code names, encrypted apps, and definitely no announcement that the podcast was even coming. We were in stealth mode and making decisions as information became available. The whistleblower victims were very clear. They wanted to go public. They wanted to expose MOVE as an alleged abusive cult. And they wanted justice. They wanted their alleged abusers to be held accountable under the law. They told us MOVE leaders had always told them growing up that there were supporters, insiders, M1, within the Philadelphia Police and Philadelphia City Hall. So reporting criminal allegations locally was not an option. Supporting the victims and their desire for justice under the law was and still is the priority 
After more than a year, I will reveal this. The Philadelphia FBI and the Burlington County detective assigned to the John Gilbride homicide case were made aware of the criminal allegations within MOVE and information related to the Gilbride case well before we launched the podcast in coordination with Pixie Africa's Escape from MOVE in July 2021. No assistance in the form of opening an investigation or conducting formal interviews happened then, and as of this date, November 2022, still has not happened. So this is where I'm going to publicly declare MOVE to be right about something that they always drilled into their members. And it was this. The system, law enforcement, will never believe you. And even if they did, they will not help you. To say we were worried about our sources and the potential for our completely independent podcast to be able to help them tell their story is an understatement. But we were not going to cut and run. The plan was made. Kevin Price and his family were going to move away. Go public. And then three days later, Pixie was going to escape move with her five kids. This is audio recorded in my parked rental car in West Philadelphia in June 2021, four weeks before the podcast launched. You will hear Kevin, Pixie, and myself. So they can come. When Kevin comes out, my biggest fear is they're going to come after him right away. And, of course, they're going to start their lies. And, you know, he's a white man. He's just like Tony, this and that and the other. But to me... That's good as long as he's safe because a couple of days later when there's me and Wit and Josh and Maria, that's the second wave. It's going to be like an earthquake and then a tsunami. They don't know what's coming. They don't know how many more people are involved in it. They, don't, right. they can't yeah. get around me, Pam's daughter, saying this. Uh, they can't get around Wit, Mike and Debbie's daughter and Mike Africa's sister saying this, Mo's son saying this. Together, we were the only resources to get the story out as a way to provide safety by public exposure. I feel like there's enough people in the world that are going to hear this. Seems like it's going to be a big deal because it's never been done in this organization before. The whole plan, the podcast, people's life choices, was all built around safety. Get the whistleblowers to safe locations in order to deter any manipulation, retaliation, or violence. The teasers were meant to confuse and distract MOVE. They were smokescreens and surprises, and it worked. MOVE members and loyalists were scrambling to get information and to spin doctor as best as they could, while being totally in the dark on what the podcast had discovered and who had been giving interviews to us. So a year has passed since we ended season one. John Gilbride's murder remains unsolved. MOVE leadership and key MOVE members have yet to respond to our requests for comment or interviews, but some of them have happily talked to reporters, podcasts, and other media projects that are not asking the same questions we are. Maybe, just maybe, because the current allegations and the murder of John Gilbride conflict with the old narrative. Regardless, there have been some very positive developments behind the scenes with our sources. Children born into MOVE have been enrolled in school, and they're thriving. Individuals formerly in MOVE are processing their experiences with professional therapists, and many alleged victims of MOVE have reached out to each other to share information and provide support. Any cult's worst nightmare. I'm going to guess that MOVE's additional worst nightmare is that there are now two personal blogs from ex-MOVE members. Tony Allen's antimove.blogspot.com from when he left in 2004. And of course, Kevin Price's leavingmove2021.blogspot.com. 
that to date has over 87,000 page views. Definitely check both of them out. I'll put the links in the show notes. So that's my update to get us into season two. With season one, it was necessary for you to listen to episodes in order so that you could see the puzzle pieces being fit together. For season two, the episodes will be connected under the same umbrella, Move History, and will function like chapter samples of a book about the 50-year history of Move. Season two is starting off with an expert who has spent 40 years studying and working in the area of high-control groups, better known as cults. He got into this when a group was targeting his own grandmother, who was living in a nursing home. He has taken that personal experience and used it to help more than 500 families dealing with loved ones and cults. He has given hundreds of media interviews, and you might have seen him featured on the HBO documentary series, The Vow, and the Star series, Seduced, both about Nexium. He is an author and both the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute. When I picked up his 2014 book and saw Move mentioned, I knew that I wanted to have him come on the podcast for our conversation. Hello. Hi, Rick. It's Beth. Beth, can you hold just one moment? I have to talk on this call for just a moment. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm here. All right. Okay. All right. Hey. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, I'm, I'm finally back. I'm sorry. Is everything okay? Yeah, I am fine now. Okay. <laughs> I had to take one call, and I was on another call that I thought might be you. And it was uh, a family affected by a, by a cult. And so they wanted to talk to me for a while. I talked to them for a while. I gave them some resources. And then I went to you. <laughs> You're a busy guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not enough of you and too many cults. Yeah, I think the latter. Yeah. You know, just grown to such a degree uh, that I never imagined. Because, of course, my work goes back 40 years. And I can remember when cults had to recruit you face-to-face. And that is just hardly ever done anymore. It's all online, through social media, and it's just incredible how it's changed. Yes. Well, I, I really appreciate you making the time. You know, it seems like when I first spoke to you, it was before I launched the podcast, and I was trying to just do my due diligence on, on who MOVE was, and it was before... I was contacted by kids that were born into the group and that opened up a whole other thing, which I'm very glad about. And so as I thought about how I want to move forward, it made a lot of sense to go back and talk to an expert because you do validate their firsthand accounts as an expert. So can you share how you first came to learn about MOVE and how you determined based on your criteria, that MOVE is a cult and to the level that you would include them in your book, Cults Inside Out. I've been working in the area of cults and research about cults, interventions to help cult members. And also I've testified as an expert witness regarding destructive authoritarian groups in 11 states, including United States federal court. I've worked with the FBI, the Justice Department, Homeland Security in dealing with the criminal behavior of destructive cults. Most recently, I testified in court against Keith Raniere, 
the leader of the notorious cult Nexium. He's now serving 120 years in prison. I've been involved in multiple criminal cases involving cults going all the way back to the 80s. So that's my background. I wrote about John Africa and Move in my book, Cults Inside Out. So I'm well acquainted with the group, and I also am well acquainted with the recent problems and people leaving. I became aware of Move probably like many people around 1985 when there was a confrontation, a standoff, and a terrible tragedy that claimed the lives of a number of people. When many houses uh, in Philadelphia were destroyed by fire and people died as a direct result of that. But that tragedy grew out of the nature of MOVE, the, the kind of group that it was, which was anti-government, anti-anyone or anything other than the authority of John Africa, the leader of the group. And in fact, members of the group would change their, their last name to Africa, and they all identified that strongly with the leader. Uh, whatever he said was right, was right. Whatever he said was wrong, was wrong. His writings became their Bible, and they lived, even though they were in Philadelphia, they lived socially isolated lives within these row houses. In a sense, they had created a kind of compound world that was ruled over by the only authority they recognized, John Africa. And so it is not surprising that when the police and law enforcement came regarding legal issues, eviction, etc., that the group refused to acknowledge that authority. And that led to the tragedy. And so that's how I became aware of the group MOVE, led by John Africa. And for your book, Cults Inside Out, can you tell me where you chose to write about MOVE and what chapters they fall in and how you made that determination? Well, the, the book begins with a kind of modern history of destructive cults. And it includes at first a chapter called Growing Awareness About Cults. And that chapter reports basically about large groups that in, included many, many people. For example, the Unification Church led by Reverend Moon, the People's Temple led by Jim Jones, and the polygamist group known as the FLDS, led by now imprisoned Warren Jeffs. So the chapter that MOVE is in is a chapter titled Small But Deadly. And these are groups that really weren't that large, but became recognized and notorious because of tragedies that occurred connected to their group. And so that's the context of of my inclusion of move in the book, because many people died, including a man who was really just trying to have a relationship with his child. And he had been frustrated 
by the MOVE group. This would be after the tragedy in 1985, much more current. And he sought and, and received the right to have unsupervised visitation with his child. And the group had done everything possible to keep him from having that visitation. And then finally, when he would have had that first visit unsupervised in quite some time with his son, he was found dead. And so that was another tragedy that many people feel must be connected to MOVE, but it remains an unresolved crime. Rick is, of course, speaking about ex-MOVE member John Gilbride, murdered in 2002 in the midst of a custody battle with MOVE leader Alberta Africa. From your expert experience, can you speak about cults in general when children are involved? Well, I think that when children are involved, what we have to understand is they have no choice. So there were hundreds of children that were taken out of the polygamist cult known as the FLDS, led by Warren Jeffs in Texas. And those children entered into a world through being taken out by authorities from this compound called Yearning for Zion. They were taken out of that compound and brought into a world that they did not understand. And that children that grow up in destructive authoritarian group like the FLDS and others that I could name, they, they have no understanding of the outside world. They are very often extremely isolated. They are frequently homeschooled. They only know people within the context of the group that are other members, children of members of the group. And they have what I would call a false social proof. That is that when they look around them to judge what is normal, what is reasonable, what the group reflects back is what they regard as normal, but what the outside world would frequently say is abnormal or even crazy. So this accounts for this kind of alternate reality within the bubble of the group. That is that what we see as disturbing and unusual is normalized within the context of the group's social isolation, their environment. And that's how these kids grow up in extreme groups like MOVE or the FLDS or Children of God. And this accounts for how their mindset is cultivated and really constrained by the group. And, and this would be what is often called milieu control or control of the environment in what is called a thought reform scheme or what has often been referred to as brainwashing. With cults like People's Temple, FLDS, MOVE, I would like you to speak on what you think about children being raised in these destructive closed groups where there's been abuse and crimes against children, according to U.S. law, and authorities come in. Well, this is being played out with a number of groups. For example, authorities have raided a group called 12 Tribes that was once led by Gene Spriggs, 
now dead. Another example would be Children of God, which was the group that once included the Phoenix family of Joaquin Phoenix and River Phoenix, the actors. And that group had been raided many times because of abuse allegations. But when they do these raids, they they frequently find little, if any, evidence. And the children themselves will not be forthcoming and honest about what is happening. And everything is hit. So many of these raids don't bear fruit. And, and nothing happens. But I think that what people need to understand is the, that in a destructive cult that is very enmeshed, where the families are very enmeshed, there's this feeling that to, to talk about the abuses, to talk about the things that happen within the group to outsiders is a terrible sin. It's a betrayal of the group. And you have to understand that when members are thinking in those terms, they're wondering, well, if I do speak out, and and it's very difficult given the indoctrination of the group to imagine yourself doing that. But if I do, what will what will be the price? What will I have to pay? Will I be shunned? Will I be excommunicated? Will I be pushed out of the group? And will then my family turn on me, have nothing further to do with me? And so those kind of exit costs cause people to be silent and not to talk about what has happened to them. And I know about this because I've talked to so many children that have left groups like this. I was involved in a case where 21 children were removed from a destructive cult. Many of them had been horribly abused, and yet they were very reluctant to to open up and talk about what had happened to them. And, And some of them felt such loyalty to the group, even though they had been abused, that they had to be held in a juvenile facility because they wanted to run away and go back to the group. And to better understand, these children were taken out by social services. After repeated allegations of abuse, the authorities intervened. There are some groups that don't have have children, like with Heaven's Gate, there was no children involved. And in Nexium, it was mostly adults that they were interested in, with the one exception of the minor. And I wanted to know what your thoughts are with cults that are about new generations? And what is the purpose, do you think, behind that? Cheap labor and and growing the group. I mean, there are groups, as I mentioned, 12 tribes, where children are working at, as early as age 9 or 10 and violating labor laws, by the way. That group has been raided by authorities in New York because of labor violations, and specifically that they were using child labor against the law. So when you perpetuate a group by raising children in the group, these people become your labor force. And what you're providing them with often is just room and board, no retirement, no health insurance, nothing like that, no 401k. And so you've got a cheap labor pool. And then you can open up as 12 Tribes has, 
cafes, mate, tea spots, or you can use them to refurbish buildings and flip real estate and accumulate millions and millions of dollars. I don't think people realize how much money is involved in some of these groups and how much money they accumulate because the general membership in many of these groups, they don't control the money. The money is controlled by the leaders at the top. And uh, there is very little, if any, transparency regarding money. And so the group holds all these assets and the members of the group take care of the assets, the property, the businesses. And the more people you have that are willing to provide virtually free labor or very low cost labor, the more money you can make and the more power you can have. What are your specific thoughts and opinions regarding cults in the United States and laws, law enforcement, prosecutions? Well, I think that we have to realize that religious freedom, and many of these groups are predicated on religion, but at the same time, there are many groups like MOVE that don't really have a religious premise, but rather are political or environmentalist groups. I mean, there are a wide range of groups that believe in different creeds, different philosophies, different things that that is the belief system of the group that is not necessarily religious. But many of these groups that we call destructive cults are religious or spiritually based. And they have this idea that the First Amendment guarantees them religious freedom and that that enables them to do whatever they want in the name of their religion. And I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that we all live in a country of, that is predicated on laws, and all of us are accountable to those laws. And freedom of religion does not mean that you can do anything you wish in the name of your religion. So when a group crosses the line and they become criminal and they do things such as physically abuse children, neglect children medically, and the children are dying because of medical neglect, or that women in the group are being abused, or they're, they're sex trafficking or labor violations, whatever the legal violation may be, the infraction may be, that that group and its leadership are accountable. And increasingly, that's what's happening in the United States. Though for a very long time, there were groups like the Followers of Christ or the General Assembly of the Firstborn that denied medical care to children and children were dying and the, the authorities were doing nothing. So now parents are being told, look, you have the right to reject medical care and, and die rather than receive medical care if you wish. But you do not have the right to make that choice for your minor child. Your minor child has a right to life. And that means that you have an obligation to take them to a doctor, a hospital. And if you don't, there may be a court order to intervene. And if that child dies because of you not taking them, then you will be held responsible and you can go to prison. So this is what is changing in the United States now. 
we're seeing groups being prosecuted more than they have been in the past because you can't claim the First Amendment uh, religious freedom to protect you when you're committing crimes. I've noticed that New York is definitely leading the way as far as prosecutions of cults, and they're using the the RICO framework. But that is on a state level. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on a sort of state-by-state progress as far as success in prosecutions, and then also what needs to happen at the federal level. Well, I just think it's all about enforcement. When we look at the use of RICO in the Nexium case, which I was involved in, for many years, people were complaining and approaching authorities in Albany, in Saratoga Springs, and saying, this group is breaking the law. They're breaking the law regarding tax fraud. They're breaking the law regarding INS. They're bringing people in in illegally from other countries and keeping them in the U.S. illegally. There is sexual abuse. There were terrible things going on. It escalated to the point that women were being tortured and branded physically by the direction of Keith Raniere, the leader of the group. And it's very sad how long it took for the authorities to deal with it. And then finally, it was the federal prosecutor in in Brooklyn that decided this has got to end. And I give Catherine Oxenberg a great deal of credit for that because Oxenberg, who is a very well-known actor and celebrity, her daughter was in the group and her daughter was tortured in the group. And she told me, she said, I am going to expose them. I'm going to destroy them because this cannot go on. So it took someone like Oxenberg and the prosecutors in Brooklyn to go after Nexium. The formula remains the same. It's about the law. Is the group committing crimes? And are the law enforcement authorities aware? And are they enforcing the law? I mean, frequently what the authorities feel is, look, this is a religious group. I don't want to get involved in it. They're going to claim that we're persecuting them. Well, no, being held accountable to the law is not persecution. It's just treating people with the due process that they have coming. I mean, they can hire a lawyer, defend themselves, and so on. But it really boils down to not giving them a pass, not letting them carry on and commit crime after crime without being held accountable. So I think it's all about enforcement. And then when it comes to medical neglect, which is a very serious problem, has been in the United States, children and adults dying every year because a group says that they are sinful if they go to a doctor or they go to a hospital or they take antibiotics. State by state, states have been removing what was once the religious exemption for people involved in a religious community that did not believe in modern medicine or going to the doctor. But there are states like Idaho, for example, that are holding out, that are just not willing to change the law to protect children. 
So it's something that has to be addressed by state legislatures, and it has to be pushed by people within that state who want to hold these groups accountable because of the horrible things that are happening to children, women who are being brutally mistreated. Now, with MOVE, they've been in an urban environment. They've been very public, unlike Warren Jeffs, who built a compound and kept the outside world out. MOVE has been front and center, and with children clearly not going to school, aggressive tactics, even with John Gilbride, they were aggressively and right out in the spotlight, crossing state lines to surveil him, to criminally harass him. And I wondered what your thoughts are on why you think MOVE has been able to operate for now 50 years like this in plain sight in Philadelphia. Because they have perpetuated a mythology about the group being horribly persecuted, maligned, and victimized by government and the authorities, when in fact, what went on that led up to these confrontations in 1978 and 1985 is that John Africa felt, and the leadership of, of MOVE felt, that they were above the law, that the only authority that they saw as meaningful was their own leadership. And that anyone else was at best not someone to be listened to, but at worst, someone to be attacked and, and even criminally assaulted. So there's this mythology that evolved about MOVE that this is a terribly persecuted group. And look what happened to the city of Philadelphia. They made a terrible mistake by using this percussion bomb that uh, precipitated a horrific fire that killed people and destroyed city blocks. And so after that, it's almost like MOVE is untouchable, that to go after them uh, risks this invoking of their martyrdom and the fact that they would say, as many of these groups do, you are persecuting us. We are victims. We are not perpetrators. And so that has kept the authorities at bay. And the tragedy of 1985 animates it. When I first looked at 1985, what stuck out to me right away, but is never included in the narrative, is that the five children who were in 62210 Osage, which MOVE had taken as their headquarters in the middle of a residential neighborhood, that those five children were not in the custody of biological family members. And yet they were all referred to as like brothers and sisters and that their children were killed. I mean, that's often what Ramona Africa says, like our children were killed. She doesn't have any children. And I wanted to ask you to speak about sort of the communal aspect, and I'm going to call it ownership of children by destructive cults. Well, this has happened over and over again. For example, the Waco Davidians, led by David Koresh, who I knew originally as Vernon Howell. There were, I think, 19, 20 children that died in the fire that 
ended the Branch Davidians in Texas. They, like MOVE, had a standoff with authorities. And like MOVE, the Waco Davidians had broken many laws. And they were being held accountable. And like MOVE, the authorities probably, in my opinion, were too aggressive. And they could have handled things differently. They seem to be unaware or or willfully un, unaware of the fact that this was a group of very fanatical people that were devoted to a leader who mental health professionals would call a psychopath, and that this was very volatile. They were heavily armed, and the idea that the BATF just went in and raided the group the way they did was very poorly thought out. So the end result was these children died and David Koresh fathered many of them. Some of them were not his children and they died because he would not let them out. They could have actually been put in a place of safety in an underground shelter, but he chose instead to put them in a very vulnerable place where they would certainly die. And they died a horrible death. I think that David Koresh felt, and many cult leaders feel this way, the children are mine. They're my property. I own them. Another example, even worse, were the 200 children that died at Jonestown under the direction and leadership of, of Jim Jones. Uh, this was the People's Temple tragedy in which Jones ordered his people to commit what he called revolutionary suicide. Uh, the children, though, were all murdered, some of them by their own parents. They were given poison, cyanide, mixed with a fruit punch, and given to the children and the adults also. And uh, almost a thousand people died at Jonestown. So what you see play out over and over again with, with these horrible tragedies with cults is that the leader feels that they have a sense of ownership over everyone in the group and that these people have no meaning in life without the leader. And therefore, in almost a kind of narcissistic rage, the leader decides everyone must die with me. If I chose to die, if I am going to die, then everyone else should also perish. Because what are they without me, without their light, without their guiding leader? And so this is how so many of these groups, because they're so tethered to the leader who is an absolute authority, that they cannot make their own value judgments, that they cannot think independently without the leader's input. And when the leader becomes unstable and goes off the rails, the whole group then goes over with the leader. That's the tragedy of an absolute authoritarian group like MOVE or the Waco Davidians or the People's Temple. I'm wondering if you could talk about the mindset of a destructive cult when they're at the very precipice of, I can surrender and escape, or I can stay inside and I'll die for my cause. 
I think in many situations, people look at a destructive cult, which I would define as number one, the group has an absolute authoritarian leader that is the driving force and defining element of the group. And that that leader is always right, always in control and becomes an object of worship that the leader is seen as the voice of God, the ultimate authority. And then second, that that leader uses identifiable coercive persuasion and thought reform techniques to break people down and to dominate the way they think, to control their value judgments and gain undue influence over them. And then finally, that the leader uses the undue influence that he or she possesses over the members to exploit them and hurt them. And so you take these three elements, the all-powerful leader that is an object of worship, the process of coercive persuasion being used systematically to gain undue influence, and then the destructiveness of the group, which varies by degree from group to group. Some groups that are destructive are less destructive than others. And so you take those three elements, those core elements, and it doesn't matter what the group believes. It's about how the group behaves, its dynamics, and its structure. Now, having said that, one of the most foundational aspects of coercive persuasion is milieu control or control of the environment. And this creates the bubble, the alternate reality. And people become trapped in that alternate universe that is dominated by the leader. And they cannot imagine a life outside. So even if you think that the members of the group are free and that they could just walk out, they don't feel free. They feel to walk out means that they would go into a hostile in a world on the outside. Frequently, there's a kind of we-they mentality. We are the elect. We are the holy. We are the chosen. And everyone and everything outside of our organization is at best suspect and at worst evil, maybe even demonic or satanic. And so the people in the group feel constrained by fear. They fear the outside world. They don't trust the outside world. And also, if they have family and friends in the group, they feel to leave the group means that they will leave their whole way of life, their whole family, their friends. And so having to choose between that, they instead decide, I will stay here. I will stay in the group. even if it may mean their life. For example, there were Waco Davidians during the fire that could have left the compound. In fact, there were people trying to help them leave. And some of them were seen running directly into the flames and essentially killing themselves. And this is indicative of a destructive cult. Different people have written books and sort of given an estimation of how many cults there are in the U.S. I think John Jalalix in her book said there's probably about 5,000 operating at any time on the spectrum of benign and malignant and different in size. 
I wondered if you agreed with that. And then I wondered if there are that many cults, what do you personally think is valuable in people learning about MOVE as a cult? Well, I think there are probably at least 10,000 groups wow, that can really? be considered destructive cults in the United States. And I, I say that based on reports from the International Cultic Studies Association, which is a longstanding organization going back to the 70s. And at one time, I think in the 80s, they estimated that they had received complaints about more than 5,000 groups. But more recently, they said that that number exceeded 10,000. I've worked in Europe and Asia, all over the world. And what I've seen is that the cult phenomenon is global and that there are thousands and thousands of groups in Europe alone, in Russia, in China, in Japan. And we read about them almost daily, really, about them in court, about people leaving, serious problems that have been precipitated by these groups. So I think this phenomenon has grown enormously. And what we learn from a tragedy like MOVE is that this can be very destructive. And so what people should learn from MOVE is, well, if there's a group that is so much like MOVE that it's just eerie, the correlations, that means that that group that you may think is benign, if they're like MOVE, if they sound like move, if they have the group dynamics of move, if you hear some rhetoric that is very similar in the way that the group preaches and teaches its members, that that might be a destructive cult. So we have that example, not only in move, but in other groups that have had tragic situations. So every time this happens, we have to reflect and think, well, is this like another group that I know that I might be involved in or someone I know is involved in? And what can I learn from this tragedy that I can apply to the situation that I'm witnessing with maybe a family member, a friend, a coworker who I'm concerned about? So we can learn from these tragedies. Sadly, the internet, which I thought would be a great resource for positive change regarding destructive cults, is a two-edged sword. So on one hand, there are, there are uh, databases like the Cult Education Institute, which is at culteducation.com, which I launched in 1996 and is a huge database of information about groups that have been called cults, including MOVE. But as much as there might be information that you can reach online to educate your, yourself about cults, there are also cults recruiting online, which is the new means of recruitment through social media. So people are, are following leaders and groups on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. They're watching videos on YouTube, becoming indoctrinated. They're sending money through PayPal. I mean, it just goes on and on in the ways that groups now use social media and the internet to recruit and extract money and exploit people. So 
the internet, which I thought would be this kind of, of, of panacea, this cure for destructive cults that would be somehow, you know, eliminated through the free flow of information. It's kind of been turned on its head. And now what we're seeing is many, many people following a leader online that they may never meet personally, but can very negatively affect their life. Now, with the allegations that were shared on our podcast last summer and then put on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer, it would seem that that would have made people who were supportive of MOVE say, oh, I didn't know this and my outrage about May 13th, now I'm going to sort of focus that outrage about what actually was happening inside the group. And that has not fully happened. And I wondered if you could speak to that when supporters or people who have believed the public-facing narrative, the front speak, when they get actual information, why they can't take it in or are unwilling to take it in and realize that it was a deception and that people were hurt. Well, because that's what we call cognitive dissonance. So when you're confronted with facts that directly contradict what you believe, you can seek another narrative. You can go to the group, go online, and find your own, quote, research that offers a direct alternative to what you've been listening to or, or what you've read in the newspaper. And the group will spin it in a completely different way. And then if you are in a group or you are embedded in a kind of information bubble online where you only follow people that agree with you, you do that on Twitter, you do it on Facebook, you do it on TikTok, you watch videos that preach the party line and you just ignore all the other information and then are reinforced in this false narrative by the social media you choose, by the way in which you, you create your own bubble online. This gives you the ability to totally ignore reality and you have your alternate facts. You have your narrative that the group has given you and that is reinforced by the people you know in the group. So this is how people continue to be true believers, even when the group has been proven to be criminal, uh, the leader has proven to be a psychopath, and is in prison. I mean, Keith Raniere is serving 120 years in prison, and he still has people that follow him, that are loyal to him, people that claim that he was falsely charged and is falsely imprisoned and he's a martyr and they continue to believe in him and there are diehard followers or or people that are totally convinced in this way that will continue to follow cult leaders despite the information available that proves that their claims are false and that their narrative is a fantasy people and many of these groups have a kind of master plan of recruitment. Some will target college campuses. The typical age demographic for most cults 
is 18 to 26. But there have been groups that target the elderly. There have been groups that single out a particular race or or religion for recruitment. For example, the polygamists would target mainstream Mormons frequently. David Koresh would target Seventh-day Adventists because he himself had been involved with Seventh-day Adventist churches. They didn't want any part of him. They threw him out, as they did the founder of the Davidian sect that preceded Koresh, Victor Howdeff. But there are groups that will go back and target their former faith or target a certain demographic, a certain type of individual. And then what we saw with Scientology that has been called a cult is that Scientology, based on the directives of its founder, L. Ron Hubbard, would specifically target celebrities. And that's why they created what they call celebrity centers. And so they would go out of their way to find notable personalities, famous actors, people in industry that were iconic, who they could then recruit. And then those people would become essentially poster people for further recruitment and attract more attention. And we've seen that with Scientologists like Tom Cruise, Kirstie Alley, John Travolta, and how their involvement in Scientology, for some people, has been the impetus behind their curiosity about the group and their willingness to participate with the group. And certainly Nexium did that. I mean, they at one time had Edgar Bronfman Sr., Claire Bronfman's father. He was involved attending coursework at Nexium. He later said he left because he thought the group was a cult. And for that reason, his daughters shunned him and largely disconnected from him for the remaining years of his life, which I think was a terrible tragedy. But because of the Bronfman's involvement and because of other people involved that were medical doctors, lawyers, leaders in the business world, there was the perception that Nexium was very good, that how could these successful people be part of it if it wasn't something really positive? And destructive cults are not confined to one demographic. They draw on many. So there are young people that are in childbearing years. There are older people who have assets that the group may want. There are people who are politically or in some other way connected that the group hopes to use to network, to gain greater acceptance, power, special considerations. As we unpack and unwind a group, we want to look at all of those things. And we want to go to those people who support the organization and confront them and say, do you know that this group has done things that are really quite destructive? There are many people who feel they've been victimized by this group. How can you support them? Why do you support them? Are you really aware of everything about this group? Are you aware of all of the history of this group? Where does the media come into how cults are reported on, who's called a cult, and how headlines and stories are framed? 
I think that the media needs to focus on what are the core criteria that define a destructive cult and try to be consistent and focus on the facts, not the fiction manufactured by the group or, for that matter, the exaggerated storytelling of maybe not real cult members. The media is challenged with sorting through the information and establishing what is true, what are the facts, and what is fiction. And in the same way that the media evaluates the group propaganda, their spin, the media has to weigh each claim by each victim in the same way. Each time a cult story comes out, we all have to weigh the facts. And of course, the media is part of that process. Could you give me your assessment on law enforcement and their level of education, information, and interest in understanding and knowing the criteria for a cult so that they can be aware that, if possible, crimes need to be investigated? Well, I've worked with law enforcement many times, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the FBI, the Justice Department. I've worked with prosecutors, local law enforcement, child protection agencies that have removed children from destructive cults. In my experience, the people in these various areas of enforcement are open to learn. And they want to learn and they want to understand. I think that's the vast majority. So it's just incumbent upon people like myself and people that have left destructive cults and people that deal with this phenomenon to share information. And of course, that's the good thing about the internet, that we can share on the internet. The Cult Education Institute has a message board, a public message board where many stories have surfaced for the first time about destructive cults and their criminal behavior. As a direct result, people at times have been arrested and the media picked up on a story that started on a message board. So I think that there is an openness to learn, an openness to understand, and it's up to all of us that care about this issue to share what we know as effectively as we can, and to be willing to have a conversation and patient with people who disagree with us, because we can't just get our back up and become angry. We have to make our case. Look, I understand this is hard to believe, but this is happening. And let me show you the documentation. Let me show you the evidence. Let me show you the proof. And you tell me, Can you not conclude the same as I have, that this is destructive behavior based on the factual evidence? I mean, that's what we have to go with. And in my experience, the overwhelming majority of enforcement people are going to be interested in that. Probably the weakest area for me that I feel is not really performing as they should is the Internal Revenue Service. Now, I know the amount of people employed by the IRS, in particular in investigation for tax fraud, has been cut way back in in preceding years. 
there's talk that it will now be built back up and that there will be more people doing that. I think that the level of tax fraud that is committed by groups that claim tax-exempt status, for example, 501c nonprofit religious status, that it's just unbelievable. I've seen flagrant violations of tax laws by various groups, and nothing was done. There was one group that I dealt with years ago called the Odyssey Study Group, led by Sharon Gans, and the members gave me file after file to share with the Internal Revenue Service, which I did. And Sharon Gans was never held accountable for what I believe to be uh, flagrant tax fraud. Instead, she died in a luxury suite in the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan. I think this area is one that is not being utilized enough. I think that tax authorities should really be looking at some of these groups and their abuses of their tax-exempt status. You don't even have to be a 501c3. You can cash app, you can Venmo, you can GoFund, you can send Bitcoin, you can buy things for them, that there are ways around not even having a 501c3. You're absolutely right. I've dealt with a couple of, of small online cults in recent years. One was Love Has Won, led by Amy Carlson. This was a group that believed that Amy Carlson was, as they called her, Mother God. And she would do streaming, Venmo, and PayPal. And she had a following online. And she ended up with hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, certainly a great deal of real estate assets, Eventually, she would die probably from chronic alcoholism and drug abuse, but she was rich. And quite frankly, there weren't that many members. And then you have the story of Eligio Bishop, who's now languishing in jail in the area of Atlanta, Georgia. He would go online and solicit money, exactly as you're describing. He used Facebook. He used Twitter. And then he actually would Airbnb in Costa Rica, Panama, Mexico. He would have people come down and be with him and give him their money, share whatever income checks they had. And it was a relatively small group, but there was horrific abuse to women in the group, sexual abuse. And Bishop is now locked up and facing criminal charges. But it all happened online. He collected the money online. He was nicknamed Nature Boy. That was his handle online. And he would call his group Carbon Nation. It was all based on claims of a racial identity. And it was targeting specifically African-Americans and more often than not, African-American women. Considering that you have said there's an estimated 10,000 high control groups, aka cults, in the U.S., both in person and online, large and small, how can the average person figure out if the group that they might be a part of could be one of those harmful, exploitative, or deceptive groups? Well, I think for me, it would be looking at someone in the group and saying, what do you think you've done wrong? What mistakes has, 
has this organization or group or church or whatever made that you feel were helpful to understand and that informed your moving forward that helped you to do things better? When were you wrong? When did you make mistakes? And and how did that affect you? I think that's a good question. It exposes whether or not the group feels that it's capable of making a mistake or its leader. I mean, we all make mistakes. So if a group basically dismisses that question or offers you something that's more spin than substance, then I think you have to say, well, what is this? Maybe this is some kind of totalist extreme group that is potentially unsafe. I think that's a good question. And then always watch for the leader. How is the leader viewed by the group? Is the leader worshipped? Is the leader revered? Is the leader spoken of with awe? Or is the leader talked about in a way that the leader is, is fallible? The leader is not perfect. The leader is not the object of worship. And talk to the people about how they view people that have left. Do they bless them? Do they, okay, fine, I hope things work out for you. Check back with me. I care about what happens to you. Or when people leave, are they just cut off, dismissed? And that leads into this question. Does the group really care about me? Do they really love me? Do they really like me? Or is all of that predicated on my compliance and involvement with the group? Is it unconditional love or isn't it really very conditional? And is that what I want in my life? Do I want to be subordinated in that way? Do I want to belong to an organization that doesn't respect me as an individual and instead only loves me or cares about me on the basis of me submitting to them, working for them, doing whatever they say? Is that the kind of love I really want? Could you share advice or recommendations for individuals who experienced a destructive cult or a high control group? The Cult Education Institute has a whole section on recovery. In that section is a directory for recovery resources, a listing state by state of mental health professionals who provide counseling to help former cult members. The International Cultic Studies Association, or ICSA, has also a state-by-state online directory of counseling resources. There are many support groups across the country, and, and people can tap into them and find them online through the Cult Education Institute, through the International Cultic Studies Association. And really, probably the best thing you can do is Get involved in a support group where you can share your experience and feel heard and feel that people really understand what you've gone through. Or working with a mental health professional, which may be done by Zoom or Skype rather than face-to-face because of where you live. Having somebody who really understands, I think, is the beginning of 
of really good recovery. And of course, the most important component, I think, in recovery is education. That's just simply sitting down and reading the literature that exists about cults. There's my book, Cults Inside Out, which is quite comprehensive and has an 18-page bibliography and many research footnotes. And there are books like Bounded Choice by Yanya Lalich and Cults in Our Midst by the very noted clinical psychologist Margaret Singer. And then there, there are two books written by friends of mine, Flo Conway and Jim Siegelman, Snapping, which came out in 1978. And then there's a new edition, which is a seminal book about cults and how they operate. And then the book Holy Terror, which came out in 1982 about fundamentalism and extreme versions of fundamentalism and how that can traumatize people. So in order to help yourself, start with reading, start with education. Many of these books are available in audible format, so you don't even have to read. You can listen and you can learn about other people and their stories and what they've been through. And as you begin to hear their narrative and realize, wow, it sounds just like what happened to me, you realize you're not alone. You realize it's not your fault you realize you should not be ashamed. But understanding how we're all vulnerable to coercive persuasion and influence techniques and that these groups have the advantage. They know what they're doing, and many times the people that they approach have no idea what they're being approached by. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share based on our conversation? Well, just that let's disabuse ourselves of the notion that somehow it's just weird, screwed up people that get involved in destructive cults. I've done over 500 interventions to help people lead destructive cults. Out of those interventions, five were medical doctors. One was an orthopedic surgeon. Another was an anesthesiologist. One was a gastrointestinal specialist, hardly stupid people, very well-educated, very intelligent, high-functioning. One woman that I worked with was a clinical psychologist, but she had been tricked and trapped in a destructive cult-like situation. So if you think you're immune, you're wrong. Anybody can be had. It's a question of just bad luck. If there's one consistent narrative I've heard, it's at a low point in my life when I was depressed and I felt like things were going bad for me and I was unhappy, that group came and I bumped into them. They were a friend, they were a coworker, they were a relative, they were romantic interests, they were somebody that I valued, somebody I respected and trusted. And then I was really at a low point and they pulled me in. What I don't hear from people very often is, I was just so happy. Everything in my life was fantastic. Then I, got, I joined a destructive call. It's usually when we're at our low point, and we all go through those low points. So if you think that you're immune, think again. And when you're at a low point, beware. I think that we all have to recognize that 
if we weren't malleable uh, psychologically, emotionally, if we weren't subject to influence techniques, there would be no advertising. There would be no negative political ads like we're seeing ad nauseum right now in this election cycle. So everyone must admit that we are persuadable, that, that we are not immune to persuasion techniques. And so having accepted this reality, we then are cautious and we then are in, try to be more informed and understand that these groups are out there and that we need to be careful. And I'll just add to that, that with social media and algorithms, that they know exactly how to target what we're interested in and what we're searching. And so you're going to come across it even more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you do a Google search or even if you get a Google news feed or you're on YouTube, you know that the algorithm follows your choices and serves up more of the same. So maybe you're spiritually seeking, you're very vulnerable, or you're interested in a particular theory or, or area of research, and you end up going down the rabbit hole because of the algorithm. And many, many people are recruited in that way. I mean, and especially during this time of social isolation due to the pandemic and and how we are working remotely from home and and we're not going to the office we're not really with a group of people we're working quietly from home and i have received many many calls from people who a loved one was recruited right in their house online and they were being indoctrinated by watching videos on youtube and they were very deeply indoctrinated before their spouse or their family found out. So this does go on, and we need to be aware of it. And these groups or these individuals understand those algorithms and what hashtags and what things to say that then feeds them the areas, they're the, the groups that they're trying to target. Well, yeah, that that comes down to meta tagging, keywords, et cetera. You can search engine optimize your group and don't think that these groups are not savvy and that they don't understand all of these techniques. Or individuals. I mean, it's, the, it's just grown to such a degree that I never imagined because, of course, my work goes back 40 years. And I, and I can remember... When cults had to recruit you face to face, and that is just hardly ever done anymore. It's all online through social media, and you know it's just it's incredible how it's changed. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, Beth. Okay. All the best. Let thank me know. You. Okay, well, thanks, right. Rick. Bye bye. Bye bye. I'm so thankful that Rick was able to have this conversation with me on the podcast so that it might provide you with some additional context about MOVE and other cults. Resources and information are available in the show notes for this episode. Links to the Cult Education Institute, Rick's Twitter and Facebook, his book, Cults Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out, in addition to other resources he mentioned in this conversation. 
If you have any information that could help assist in the investigation into the 2002 murder of John Gilbride, if you have any comments, questions, or information related to this podcast, please reach out to us via email, run at gmail.com, or message us on social media. We love hearing from you, and our open-door policy applies to anyone who wants to talk, either on or off the record. Thanks for listening. New episodes will drop on Mondays. And as always, we will follow where the story takes us. This episode was reported, written, edited, hosted, and executive produced by Beth McNamara. Archival research and producing by Robert Helms. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.